My boss was getting fired, so he tricked the company into giving his team a year off with pay. Here's a story from a while ago with malicious compliance on the part of my manager. It was just around the year 2000, and I was working in IT. There had been a busy year leading up to the millennium. Now everyone was looking to get back to normal. The company had other plans for us and decided to make a third of the IT staff redundant. In my team of 12, this meant four of us. This wasn't really a problem as even though I had just moved into the IT a few years earlier, the job market was booming and getting a new job would be easy. This HR move had been a bit of a surprise as we were very busy. Lots of routine projects had been put on hold, so lots of catching up. But whatever, they knew best. Redundancy with this company offered a month's salary per year of service, way over a legal minimum. They were offering for me a year's salary tax-free, mostly, to find a better paying job elsewhere. An offer that would be hard to say no to, but unfortunately, they were not going to ask. The way redundancy works for the company in the UK is that all the occupants of the role are ranked by very carefully selected criteria and the lowest ranked members are gone. The way the criteria are selected are to make them very subjective and capable of withstanding any legal challenge that might lead to an industrial tribunal. If there was one thing HR hated above all, it was legal hassles. Criteria would be things like expected to be able to contribute well in other divisions of the company or other such evidence-free bollocks. Why this weird approach from HR? It isn't as daft as it may appear. When trying to reduce headcounts, the options in the UK are natural wastage. Offering early retirement, offering voluntary redundancy, or having compulsory redundancies. In a team role in IT, at the time, what tends to happen is that nobody is old enough to retire. And offering early retirement was actually expensive as it was based off a generous company policy. Offering voluntary redundancy means the deadwood stays. Forcing a selection process stops the good people from leaving, no redundancy money, and allows getting rid of poor performance. Performers. Or at least that was the plan. Anyway, my manager had been told that he was being made redundant, which was a bit of a tactical error. He wasn't really adhering to the company line as strictly as he might have had had the circumstances been different. He gathered us together and asked who wanted to go. Four of us, me included, volunteered. So all was good and everyone in the team would be happy. My manager, maliciously complying with the ranking exercise, duly ranked us by the contrived criteria, but interpreted to our ends and not the company's. These rankings were passed to HR, processes were run, runescaped, oracles consulted, and ultimately decisions made. Lo and behold, the gang of the four came to the bottom of the pack. Because of the extremely subjective nature of the criteria, nobody could prove the rankings were wrong. My manager then let the team know who was staying and who was going, as was right and proper. And each of us got a bye-bye loser or you're still on the board letter from HR. That wasn't the end of it though. HR somehow figured out they were being stitched up by my manager. Comparing the people leaving with the people with the highest annual appraisal scores was an exact fit. HR went into recovery mode and tried briefly to revoke the redundancies. This would have been totally legal except for one thing. It had been announced that we were the bottom of the selection criteria. Continued employment would have been unthinkable as we were declared the least competent to do the job, and they still wanted to get rid of one third. If they had insisted this, this would have been potential constructive dismissal, either for the gang of four in a weird backwards way, 
This is when the employer makes life untendable for the employee, such as saying you are rubbish at your job and they want to get rid of you. Or if another four were selected, then obviously the process was flawed and they claim unfair dismissal. Considering the entire rigmarole, particularly the selection criteria ruse, was designed to avoid legal hassle. They were painted into a corner and had to let the four of us go. So thanks to Dave for playing the system so well to get the outcome the employees and not HR wanted. Epilogue. It was, as expected, easy to get a new job in those halcyon days. I had decided to take three months off, but a really attractive role came up and I started five weeks later and have been there ever since. Epilogue 2. Eventually, talking to my friends who stayed, those round of redundancies was, as I sort of expected, the precursor to eventually outsourcing. This was very much in vogue back then. About two or three years later, the overly slimmed down organization was transferred, called TUP in the UK, Transfer of Undertaking Protection of Employment, to an outsourcer. A bullet dodge there. TUP means that you transfer your current pay and conditions and you will rot with that salary, etc. Until it is worse than your new employer standards, terms, and conditions. No pay raises, bonuses, increased holiday entitlement, nothing. This obviously also ends in another The Deadwood Stays situation as everyone who can get another job will as soon as the market moves past them. This seems like a big brain move if I've ever seen one, but at the same time, if I understand correctly, it seems like it's better to be bad at your job than to be good at your job because you get rewarded with paid time off to find a new job? I definitely don't think this would work in America because you just get fired if they want to get rid of you. But yeah, what this OP was able to pull off, I think was pretty awesome. Discipline me for being 22 seconds late without notice? Got it. Won't happen again. This happened several years ago because it was some malicious compliance that lasted for years. My former employer uses a point-based system to track attendance. The parts of this policy relevant to this story are tardy with call in prior to the shift starts half a point. Tardy with no call, one point. Accumulate enough points and you're fired. There's a set of train tracks crossing the street that leads to the facility. Occasionally, the train will stop while blocking the crossing. If you're caught there in the last few minutes before you're supposed to clock in, you have a decision to make. Wait or go around. Either way, you might be late. Sometimes you'll decide to go around and then the train clears the crossing and the folks who waited got in before you. Sometimes you'll wait and watch through the gaps in the train of the cars that went around pull into the parking lot while you're still idling waiting for the block train to cross. To be clear, going around involves taking a bunch of secondary country roads as well as a few field access roads. It's an extremely rural area. You will literally never know what kind of road conditions you're going to to find along the way. The roads may be entirely unusable during the winter months when snow covers them. One night during my years on third shift, I was stopped at these tracks and decided to wait. Eventually the train moved on. I raced into the parking lot, used my key card to zip through the turnstiles and ran into the punch clock. My clock in time was 10:30 p.m. They had these biometric punch-in clocks that read your fingerprint to clock employees in and out. Sometimes these clocks will just not read your fingerprint. I go to the punch-in clock and it said 10.30. I'm golden. It doesn't track seconds. I enter my employee ID number and place my finger on the sensor. Three beeps, failed reading. Tried again, three beeps. Tried once more, three beeps. Nope, not trying again because by this time the clock was likely to tick over to 10.31 in the middle of reading my finger. 
When I got to my assigned work area, I told my manager what happened. He said, don't worry about it. He'll manually punch me in. I should have listened, but I'm a worrier. In the morning, when the front office people started showing back up, I went to the attendance office to confirm my situation was all good. The office administrator decided to check my gate time and use that as my determining factor. I scanned my key card at 10.30, 22pm. That's a tardy, no call. One full attendance point to be issued. I reiterated that it was a train stopped on the tracks, completely beyond my control. She advised me to either leave earlier or just wait an extra half an hour for my shift to start on the majority of my days. Or else get a cell phone. I didn't have one back then. To call in with from the road next time. Well, what I did instead was started calling an absent, just in case something comes up after I leave home, but before I arrive at work. The first few days, the attendance office up front was just bemused. After weeks, they became annoyed. After months, they apparently complained enough, and I finally got told to stop. During the course of this conversation, they revealed that calling in too early before the start of your shift made it extra challenging to make sure the notice gets to the right member of management, because the message is no longer flagged as new by the time they're creating logs for the next shift. This was great news for me. From then on, every morning before leaving the premise, at the end of my shift, I used one of the phones to call in absent for the next shift that evening. They tried to write me up for insubordination, but the labor union slapped it down, pointing out that the collective bargaining agreement specifies the time we must call in by, but does not specify the time before which call-ins may not be made. Cue the huge grin across my face. I never forgot that my team manager tried to do me a solid though. If I was actually going to be late or absent for some reason, I would call the TM's desk line directly to let him know. Even long after I finally got a cell phone, I continued doing this. I would just call in on my way home instead of sticking around to use their phone after my shift. Found out years and years later from some union reps that upper management never got over this. Drove them nuts that they got beat at their own game for something so simple. It didn't bring the walls crumbling down, but it was a persistent, enduring source of frustration and impotence for them. And really, knowing that you can manage all of that with a 20-second phone call a day, that's the kind of thing that gets you out of bed in the evening. There was an edit to this story. Probably the number one observation I'm seeing is that I should have just sucked it up and left for work earlier. I've commented this a couple of times already, but nobody seems to dig for it. I usually left so early that I got to work before the 20 minutes prior to the start of our shift that we were allowed to clock in. This stop train event was a rare and unpredictable exception, but the crossing was regularly blocked for a few to several minutes by a moving train. Also, not to mention all the other random stuff that could happen on your way to work. I feel this pettiness to my core. I work for plenty of places that change their rules about clocking in or being late more than they change their underwear. At my old job, they said that we could clock in the moment we got on campus, as long as we were ready to work. I was totally fine with that. So I would get to work sometimes 30 minutes early and let dudes on first shift leave early if they wanted. But eventually, they changed it to where you couldn't clock in until five minutes before your allotted shift time. I didn't feel like changing my routine of getting to work early, so I just chilled in the operator's office. This always led to having management ask me if I could help them with something. But I just said, I can't, I'm not on the clock. To be fair, if it was someone I was cool with, I totally helped. I try not to screw over people I like, but when it was totally some butt kisser employee, I played by the rules of the job. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Don't want to fix the elevator? Meet the stinky cart. While I was earning my bachelor's in chemistry, I worked for a university hazmat department. My job involved inspecting labs, disposing of old chemicals, occasionally giving people the you-have-to-be-kidding-me stare, and plenty of other fun activities so our esteemed researchers can figure out science in a safe environment. Quick description of the campus. One building was more recent construction. It was two wings and was shaped vaguely like the S-style Tetris block that no one loves. The east wing was full of laboratories, three full stories, and basement of labs. Cancer research, Alzheimer's research, deadly banana fungus research. The place housed a most prestigious staff of brilliant minds trying to solve the world's problems. The west wing housed the administration offices of the university. Accountants, bookkeepers, and assorted bean counters... HR and desk jockeys, all the way up to the dean, people who, unlike their eastern counterparts, seem to be the cause of many baffling questions like, why are the emergency expenditures still not approved? Why is there a problem with my payslip again? And why is there so much red tape? That building was connected to the rest of the campus via underground tunnels, accessed via the basement, and had one elevator per wing. Now the thing is that the loading dock is in another building. So when the labs receive their orders of chemicals, they grab their carts and scoot down the tunnel to the arrivals, load up their carts and carry it back to the labs to be safely stored. On penalty of getting the are you kidding me stare or a long lecture by my boss. Important point, the rules prohibit using the stairs with hazmat, only elevators, it's the safest way. So one day the science wing's elevator breaks down. I send a request to have it fixed. At least four lab employees also send it. We all received the response that we should all use the administrative elevator. I reply that since one of the labs is on sort of a half floor, the only way to reach it is in the science wing elevator or a flight of stairs. I highlighted the risk of falling while carrying heavy boxes of chemicals in the stairs or how there was no way to safely carry very heavy gas containers up these stairs. They were having none of that. Use the administrative wing elevator. They will have to have the elevator fixed, but it's considered low priority. I showed the reply to my boss. He was the type of guy for who workplace safety is no laughing matter. And I was expecting him to reply with a strongly worded email and about four or five paragraphs from various workplace safety law texts. Instead, he just had this strange smile. Oh, don't worry, Rum. It'll soon be a priority to them. Two days later, my boss comes in. Rum, don't forget the biohazard truck comes tomorrow. You should collect the waste from the labs. Oh boy, biohazard day. The day where I get to leave my office, visit every lab in the university, jokingly say, bring out your dead. 
As I enter and have chats with teachers, classmates, and various lab aides, I put on my lab coat and protective goggles. And Rum, don't forget, the elevator in the science wing is broken. You have to go through the administrative wing. Oh, now I get it. See, when the pencil pushers decide that fixing the elevator wasn't a priority, they didn't realize that I would be walking around with a cart filled with containers bearing a bright yellow biohazard logo and returning with them full of old petri dishes full of culture medium. And any biochemist or microbiologist worth their lab coat will tell you, culture medium stinks. It smells like regurgitated baby food left out in the sun. So here I am walking in front of all those nice offices and meeting rooms, the clank 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 of my full cart of biohazards announcing my arrival, and the smell of death following me. Yes, I made sure that all bags were properly sealed, but it's one of those smells that just doesn't care about that. The nice lobby outside the elevator where people wait to meet the dean, hello, sorry about the smell. That nice meeting room with the door open, sorry about the noise, can I get an update on the elevator? People walking down the hall to their office suite. Wow, they do seem a bit nervous seeing a guy in a lab coat driving around containers with biohazard symbols on them. Should I tell them that it's harmless unless they're severely immune compromised? Nah. Oh, and my cart only has room for three of those containers, plus the new ones that I leave to replace the full ones. Biohazard day is about two to four trips per floor. After the second such biohazard day, we got a message stating that the elevator will be fixed over the weekend. I love the pettiness in this story because I hate when the suits don't think that things that help other departments are a priority. So if they make your life harder, why not make their life uncomfortable? Fair trade-off in my opinion. But let me ask you, who was the jerk in this situation? The suits or the lab geeks? Let me know in the comments. Don't let the VP know we're over budget. This is a bit long, but several years ago, I worked in the purchasing department of a large semiconductor company in the US. Mostly, I handled all the non-production purchases and contracts like office equipment, building management, travel contracts, that sort of stuff. But my biggest payroll was negotiating and approving temp staffing contracts for our US factories. One day, a director, we'll call him Bill, sends me a request for $150,000 for temp workers at a small facility in the middle of nowhere, Florida. The news was that a couple of local businesses had closed and he had this great idea to save the company money by moving some productions down there and snatching up those now desperate workers on the cheap. It seemed like a dumb idea at the time, but it was clearly his pet project and 150k was within his right to spend without additional approval, so I rubber stamped it and off he went. I hadn't had much interactions with Bill, but he was a pompous butthead, so I was glad to get rid of him. Now, it's important to the story to understand that our company's finances were super tightly controlled. Not a bad thing, but if you wanted to spend a dollar over your role's limit, you better have your supervisor's signature in triplicate. Directors like Bill could spend up to $250,000, VPs could spend up to $500,000, and anything over $500,000 had to go all the way to the CEO for approval. About three months later, the trouble started when Bill suddenly turned back up asking me for more money. Turns out, rural Florida doesn't have a lot of people with the skills to work in an industrial cleaning room, and the people who do don't come cheap. The money was supposed to last a year and it's already gone, but Bill is certain that he just needs a little more time and asks me to approve another 250000 without 
telling our VP, his boss. I straight up refuse since it's literally my job to stop this, but Bill, being God's gift to the company, throws an absolute fit. It got ugly, and long story short, my boss directly ordered me to approve Bill's money without escalating it. I got this all in writing since it was sketchy as hell and absolutely something I could get fired for. Finally, Bill's gone and I don't have to see his mug short balding head anymore. Or so I thought. Having disrespected the great and powerful Bill, I was now the target of his displeasure. For the next four months, I got at least three emails or phone calls a day from him or his secretary about something they didn't like about the building. The landscaping, the guy who brings the bottled water, the snack selection in the vending machine, the equipment in the C-level gym, on and on. I'm getting openly berated for the things that have nothing to do with me, but I'm stuck having to deal with them because my boss keeps caving to Bill's whims. And none of my paperwork is getting past his office either. I manage the purchasing for 12 facilities in the US and Europe, but it still needs his signature. I've got to personally bring it to him and stand there while he reviews it or he refuses to sign. It was somewhere between humiliating and infuriating and I'd increasingly wish that he'd fallen down a staircase. After months of this, finally my chance for malicious compliance arrived. Shockingly, Bill hasn't managed to turn his pet project around and you know what? Just needs a quarter million to get him through the year. I sign off, add the money to the purchase order, which now totals a cool $650,000, and I shoot off an email to both him and my boss to remind them that this won't be shown to the VP. Then I print out everything, including the direct order not to show it to the VP, and march right over to the CEO's office for him to sign. After all, it was now over the $500,000 required limit, and Bill never asked for the CEO not to see it. All hell broke loose when they realized Bill's little project was half a million dollars over budget. He didn't lose his job, but he refused to speak to me after that, which was exactly what I wanted. The Florida project was scrapped and was retasked to making basic electronic components. My boss was initially mad, but once he realized that my insistence on getting Bill's orders in writing probably saved both of our jobs, the whole thing went away. I was there for another year, and thankfully, Bill never made an appearance in my office ever again. I'm so glad Bill got screwed here. The only way the story would have gotten better is if Bill would have got fired. But like I've said a million times before, ladies and gentlemen, make that paper trail. The OP did here, and it saved their job. Also, screw Bill and his pet project. That's it for today's video. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any content, hit that subscribe button and make sure you hit that bell to turn on notifications. If you want to finish listening to all those stories, use the playlist at the top of the description. And if you're someone who live streams and needs copyright free music, check out the Cream of the Crop music by searching Cream of the Stream on Spotify or whatever music platform you choose. Remember, it's free.